when I said earlier that I really liked asking opinions from 50 people, um, that's actually what I want to talk about tonight. The not-so-subtle tendency of mind, you can't hear? I can't hear. Talk louder. Turn it up. (laughs) Okay, how is that now? Echoing. It's going to be one of those nights. How's that now? Can you hear it now? (laughs) No? Yes? All right, that's it. (laughs) Deal, as they say, (laughs) with however it sounds. Tonight um, is Passover, and in the staff and the staff dining room, we had a little mini, very reduced seder, reduced from four hours to ten minutes. <laughs> but that's okay. And um, me not not being Jewish, it's really nice to hear um, the metaphorical explanation that it's really a celebration of coming out of bondage into liberation and thinking of that not in the past, but as our heritage, as what we are doing right now in this moment, coming out of bondage into freedom, to liberation. So tonight I'd like to talk about one way that without wisdom, without understanding what's happening in the moment, we relate to experience in a way that keeps us suffering, that keeps us in bondage. And how by simple shift of perception, the whole relationship changes. And what I want to talk about is basically centered around this experience we call thinking. I don't know if you've noticed how much power that experience can have, but That's what I want to talk about tonight. At this point in the retreat, a little over halfway through, it's pretty common for uh, a yogi, a meditator, to find yourself at times in a sort of self-assessment. You know, how am I doing? Has this been a complete waste of time? Am I getting anywhere? Am I making progress? What have I learned? You know, and Most of this assessment comes in the form of thinking, doesn't it? Comparing um, how does our experience meet some ideal we've read about or heard about or just made up ourselves. And you'd be surprised how much we're just making it up ourselves. Um, And in the realm of thought, a lot of our practice, a lot of our spiritual journey can become about acquiring knowledge. Like if we get some particular set of knowledge, whether it's philosophical, whether it's understanding how to do the meditation so that you know the correct response in every situation, then we'll know, we'll be free. For years, years, I hate to say how many years, my practice was really I held in the back of my mind some idea that finally on one retreat, and I always thought it would be this retreat, I would suddenly acquire the particular piece of knowledge that explained everything. And then I would understand it all. Everything would make sense, all the paradox, all the mystery, and then I would be able to rest. Forget all this hard work and this confusion that gets going in the mind and trying to put it all together. So, oh, now I know. 
I understand. I have the knowledge. I guess you know what I'm leading up to the fact that it doesn't work this way. That actually the more we bring our attention into experience, the less hard and fast knowledge there is to hold on to. It's really about a willingness to open into the total mystery, the vastness of not knowing. So I'll read my favorite scientific article, which I think is, it serves me as a perfect metaphor for what we really begin to discover as we inquire into our mind and body moment-to-moment experience. This is um, from the New York Times a few years ago about um, cosmology. And it says, one of the great unanswered questions of cosmology is why the universe is lumpy instead of smooth. I know you've been worrying about that in these days. So in pursuit of understanding that, lumpy meaning why things cluster together instead of being evenly spaced out in the universe. So these scientists discovered, in pursuit of this, the largest galaxy ever detected. And that galaxy has 100 trillion stars in it. And it's more than 6 million light years in diameter. That's big. It's 60 times bigger than the Milky Way, which they call the Earth's own galaxy. You didn't know that we, as Earthlings, own a galaxy, but we do, the Milky Way. But this one that has the name of, oh, this, I forgot a piece. This new galaxy, this huge one, is located in the center of an even larger clump of 1,000 galaxies. And this giant clump of galaxies is called the poetic name of Abel 2029. Okay, but that's just leading up to all this investigation to try and understand what all this matter is doing. But the scientists still can't uh, understand what holds all these galaxies together. There doesn't appear to be enough ordinary matter in the universe to account for the gravitational forces that cause all these galaxies to clump together like this. So... Scientists propose the existence of vast amounts of invisible matter that eludes detection because it emits no radiation. According to prevailing wisdom, 99% of the universe is made up of this missing invisible matter. (laughs) So what's generally thought of as astronomy actually concerns only a tiny subset of particles that happen to be detectable by human nervous systems. Now, I think that's a very good metaphor for our practice. The willingness to simply bring our attention to what we can observe to meet it as clearly as possible. And sure, we'll have ideas about it, things we want to understand, interpretations. But can we put that aside and simply open into the mystery 
and let this experience in this moment simply reveal itself? All too often the answer to that question is no. But what we're learning is that it's possible. When we talk about beginner's mind, Suzuki Roshi's fantastic phrase that we've all been using, it's really this, to bring to each moment of experience this quality of attention that is free from preconception. And when we meet our just a moment of life in this way, rather than saying, oh, I know what this is. This is the desert. This is a bell. That's Anna. What do I know about Anna, you know? I think I know Anna because I've known her for years. But can we bring a freshness? We don't really know anything, absolutely. And when we can open with this wonder, really, life is so mysterious. Everything is so... It just brings such an aliveness, such a presence, such a connectedness. You know, If I look out over the desert there, just walking up here, I think, how can I think I know anything? It's so mysterious, you know? And then when we think we know, the mind snaps shut, you know? But it isn't normally the way we live. And one of the things I've noticed, one of the reasons I've noticed in my own practice, in 30 years I've spent really observing this mind and body closely, a lot, is that one of the ways um, our mind tends often not to be so comfortable with meeting every moment with this openness, who knows? We like to know, don't we? Do you really like thinking you're here, really working hard for 10 days, and you're going to get absolutely no confirmation whatsoever whether it was worthwhile or not? Does that sit well with the mind? (laughs) Sure, fine, great, you know, whatever. We like to have some sense of stability, you know, some sense of security of knowing where we are in comparison to yesterday and tomorrow, and I want to know where I am in comparison to Anna and Philip, you know, and how we're constantly comparing, am I better, am I worse, am I equal? Always wanting to have the sense of security. The Buddha said one time, this desire for a resting place is burning in the heart and mind not to need a resting place is cool and peaceful. But to us, the sense of no resting place can be very um, unrestful, (laughs) disturbing. We want some firm ground to stand on. And one way, the way I want to talk about tonight, that this tendency of wanting to control, have security manifests, is through the way we can relate to thought. As I think Jack said, I thought it was a great line, thought is a wonderful tool and a terrible master. So thought is great. It communicates. We use it to communicate, to describe, to explain, to encompass very complex things. I don't have to go on and on. We really can appreciate the power and the quality and the subtlety of thought. One way that it becomes a terrible master, that it brings us into conflict, confusion, and suffering with ourself, with how things are, with one another, 
is when the descriptions or interpretations that we're putting on a moment of experience or ourselves or another, when those harden and solidify and that description or interpretation becomes a view or an opinion, even that's okay if we know it's a view and an opinion. But so often we get caught in really believing, in, to use the Buddhist terminology, grasping, clinging, attaching ourselves to that view, to that opinion, to that description of how things are or should be. And in that attachment, in that grasping, enormous suffering can arise in ourselves and then we can inflict that on others and on the world. This aspect of grasping at views, the Buddha actually spoke about it quite a bit, quite a bit, as one of the great sources of our confusion, of our not seeing things the way they are, of our not recognizing our potential for liberation. The description, the classical description, grasping at views, is the tendency of mind to think, this alone is true, Everything else is false. Now, I always think if my mind would really say that, that would be a big help because then I would know at least a view was arising and I was grasping at it. Unfortunately, it's usually much more insidious. I mean, we really do think this is true to the exclusion of being able to admit often even the possibility that maybe, perhaps, things could be another way. So attachment to views really limits our world, our heart, our mind, our experience, our ability to be open and connected with one another. When we're caught in in an opinion, in a view, what's really interesting is how, as if our perception, our mind snaps closed and we, we don't even let in or want to let in any information that might run counter to our view, because we're so sure this is how it is. So let me just give a few obvious examples. Politics, of course, is a great one, because at least we usually know we have a view. We believe it, of course. There's nothing wrong. We're going to have opinions. We're going to act on them. Of course, hopefully we'll vote. You know, we'll, we'll have opinions on different issues. Nothing wrong with that. But... You know how the, on television, when there's election campaigns coming up and the candidates have so-called political debates, I find that debate a joke. I've never heard one where I felt like they were really interested in listening to each other and maybe hearing, oh, that, you have something different to say about that issue. Maybe there's something useful in what you say. You know, forget about it. They're just not even talking to each other. Okay, I've noticed... Back in 92, I won't go into specifics, but during the presidential election that year, there were a couple of politicians who were running for various things that I literally could not stand to listen to on television or even see, you know. This is my real attachment to this view. I knew that they were completely, you know, um, what would I say, selfish uncaring, had no one's interest in mind but themselves and rich people, that there was nothing good whatsoever about either of these two human beings. And if anyone told me something good, I didn't want to hear it. 
because then I would have to loosen my view. I read in a newspaper, maybe it was in Thailand, but it was about the recent um, presidential election in Taiwan, and it was talking about how completely, intensely, the Taiwanese people were caught up in their opinions of who they wanted to be elected for president to the extent that before the election, the hospitals were on a daily basis having brought into the emergency room, usually it was men, would be brought in by their families. If they developed a name for it, they were kind of a pre-election mania. That they would come in. This is, this is true. I read it in the newspaper. So obsessed. <laughs> I know, that really means it's true, right? <laughs> That's another scary thing. <laughs> but these guys would come in so obsessed that they were in a kind of manic state. And this kept happening over and over every day, different people. Such a manic state that all they could talk about was their candidate and how you should vote for him, and they couldn't stop talking about it. They weren't able to work. They wouldn't even let the doctors or nurses talk to them until they found out who they were going to vote for. <laughs> it was very serious. This is, and then, after the election, I don't know if you recall, but there were a lot of riots by the people whose candidates didn't win because they were so upset. So taking an opinion, a view of what we think is right, attaching to it, we really want that, can lead to enormous suffering. These are minor examples, minor examples. A couple of others that are more personal, the views people can have about what is healthy to eat. Now, I'm from the East Coast. I don't want to cast aspersions on California, but I do notice the views are a little more strongly held here than in some parts of the world where I've been. But I'll tell the story on IMS in Massachusetts. We have every summer a retreat for young adults for people between the ages of 13 and 18. And every year that's grown until there's about 60 people. And um, Stephen Smith and Michelle McDonald Smith have been doing this for years. It's a wonderful retreat. A couple of years ago, uh, in the beginning it was just parents, you know, who have been sitting and, and made their kids come. But the kids got into it, and now there's plenty of kids who come whose parents have nothing to do with it. And they love it, and they tell their friends. This year there were three or four, um, like 15, 16-year-olds from New York City you know, who lived a very different life from a meditation center out in the country in Massachusetts and whose diet was very different. They didn't really eat vegetarian, that tofu wasn't big on their agenda. You know, mostly fast food and sweets and, you know, potato chips and like that. So the cooks would, you know, try to make things kids would like, but within the vegetarian limits. And at this particular time, we had a, a group of cooks who were not into sugar, very strong views about how bad sugar is. And some of these kids, the ones from the city, really had a physical difficulty with the diet. You know, if you go off of eating a lot of sweets and a lot of fat and stuff very quickly, the digestive system doesn't adjust so well. So these kids were really having trouble, and Michelle um, told me she wanted to at least get some sweets, some sugar, you know, and the cooks didn't want them to have it. Finally, Michelle said, after quite some negotiation, the cooks agreed to let these kids have sugar, but they had to hide it. 
I thought, you know, my God, <laughs> these kids must think we're really nuts, you know, <laughs> making them hide sugar coming from the city, you know. But anyway, we can get so attached. Then on the other end, I have, was teaching a retreat in Switzerland a, few, a couple of years ago with two very good Swiss friends. And just kidding around, they kept singing to me. Every day they would sing me this little Swiss-German song from their childhood. Don't worry, I cannot replicate a song in Swiss-German. But um, the upshot of this song was, we are so happy living in the mountains. We eat plenty of butter and cheese, and that gives us good blood. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's different from what I hear (laughs) over here. We had another a couple of friends from Germany who came to California for the first time, and they were reporting to Franz about their first experience in a supermarket. They just wanted to go in and buy some milk and some yogurt. And they said, my God, what is with this country? There's, you can't just find milk. There's 1%, 2%, no percent. There's lactate 70%, lactate 100%, 1% lactate 70%, 2% lactate 70%, skim milk lactate, and finally they found regular milk. <laughs> you know? And then they would go to uh, uh, like some taco place, some inexpensive taco place in Palm Springs, and they said, we're really hungry. They said to Franz, let's order the jumbo. Franz said, you better not. <laughs> so they ordered the regular, which was, of course, gigantic, more than two people could eat. <laughs> they said, oh why don't people here just eat half as much and then they wouldn't need 75 different kinds of milk? (laughs) So, views about what we eat. But we can get very, very fixated on it. I've been in millions of conversations that got quite heated about what is really good to eat. Can we just let in the possibility that what we think is an opinion, it's not God's truth, on this planet. It's an opinion. And then it gets actually very painful and very scary. First, when we're holding an opinion and we don't know it's an opinion really deeply, we think it's the truth of how things are. In our personal life, and even more so, it wreaks havoc on the social and economic and political and person-to-person and nation-to-nation relationships on this planet. Just look in your own relationships, in your intimate relationship or with your family. Aren't there ways that, maybe I should speak for myself. I see that my mind thinks that certain people should behave in certain ways. For example, there's a certain way a house is supposed to be kept. And that's just the truth of the world. (laughs) Now the person I'm living with might think there's a different way the house is supposed to be kept. But I really notice in my mind that my way is the right way and the other unnamed person's is due to a a woeful ignorance and lack of proper upbringing, you know? And it's not always funny either, right? (laughs) It isn't always funny. It leads to real misunderstandings, to anger. You know, if I come in and I'm really tired, then 
if, if the house is the way I like it, I get really angry, you know? It's not, if I catch myself, oh, right, this is an opinion. It's an opinion. Sure, I prefer it this way, and that's okay, as long as I know it's an opinion. And if it's not the way I want it, open up. What about in the way we think the socioeconomic system should be dealt with? If you're into environment, if you're uh, working in any particular environmental issue, when you look at the injustices in our educational system, in the economic system, in all the bigotry that goes on in this country and in other countries, in the way um, different people, different neighbors can really hate each other just based on their cultural or their family background. And a few years ago in Thailand, uh, I was in Thailand, and you meet a lot of young people traveling. And we met a young guy who was just like a lot of the young guys traveling, and he was from Croatia. And this was right at the time um, of the big Croatian-Serbian war. And he just seemed like a normal guy until he was reading the newspaper one day, and there was some article about how some Serbians had been blown up and killed on a bridge. And he started cheering, sort of like his football team had won. And he just said, you know, I just hate all Serbs. Finished. And you could see there was nothing that would allow him to let in a perception of a Serbian person that would get through that. Now, that's what's really scary about how when we hold to an opinion of view and we don't know it, we shut our minds, we shut our hearts, we don't let in alternative information that breaks that down. When our view's threatened, it feels frightening often. It's scary often. And so the tendency is much more to hold to it rather than to move back onto that shaky ground. This is from the Buddha. For one who is freed from holding to views, there is no entanglement. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no more conflicts. But those who grasp after views and opinions, they wander about in the world, annoying people. (laughs) But we also suffer. So Pema Chodron says, Opinions are opinions, nothing more and nothing less. We can begin to notice them. We can begin to simply label them as opinions, just as we label thoughts as thoughts. By this simple exercise, we are introduced to the notion of egolessness. And this is interesting because it's not just that it saves us from conflict in the moment. It begins to take us right into the heart of the Buddha's teaching, into egolessness. All ego really is, is our opinions, which we take to be solid, real, and the absolute truth about how things are. To have even a few seconds of doubt about the solidity and absolute truth of our own opinions just to begin to see that we do have opinions introduces us to the possibility of egolessness. We don't have to make the opinions go away. 
and we don't criticize ourselves for having them. We just notice what we say to ourselves and see how so much of it is just our particular take on reality, which may or may not be shared by other people. Doesn't that just open up a whole different possibility of relating, which we may or may not like? It doesn't really matter, you know, if we like it. So, mindfulness is just cultivating this ability to see what's what, to meet an experience and tell the difference between that experience and our interpretation and our opinions about it. And this comes down to the basic level of perception. Perception is the recognition faculty in any moment of what's happening. So, for example, you hear that, I'm assuming. The perception is when the mind goes, oh, bell. That's perception, very simple. It's based on memory, on prior experience. And from perception, we begin to think, we begin to cogitate, we begin to draw associations and interpretations and memory very, very quickly. And from that, we very quickly can solidify into a view and an opinion. And it's only through the willingness to see that there's a view and opinion and be willing to come back and have a direct perception that we can reach out of the mental cage the solidity, the disconnection from life, from others, that getting caught in a view of someone or something creates. The Dalai Lama said, all of our difficulties stem from mistaken perception. That's quite a statement. All of our difficulties stem from mistaken perception. That's why there's so much emphasis on direct experience, on true knowledge. So I want to give an experience, a life experience I read about that inspired me deeply of someone having the courage and the vision to reach outside of what could easily have been a closed view of someone else and how that can really affect a shift. And then to talk about it in terms of our meditation practice here. So this direct connection, the willingness to reach out of what could easily be a closed view and how that direct experience shatters preconceptions and prejudice. Um, It's from a book by David Halberstam called The Children, and he's talking about a man who really inspires me greatly. His name is um, Jim Lawson. And this is about the um, sit-ins and the civil rights movement in the beginning of the 1960s. I don't know if you remember, I was quite young then, but in 1960s in Nashville, there were a group of college students, not the children is, is following about 10 of these students, who under the tutelage of Jim Lawson, he was teaching a series of nonviolent workshops to these students. Um, and Jim Lawson, he was a little older, Um, an African-American man who had been uh, a deep disciple of nonviolence for many years, 
He was a conscientious objector in the Korean War and went to prison for that. He was a disciple of Gandhi. He was a Christian minister, but deeply inspired by Gandhi. And after the Korean War, he spent three years in India on a mission, but also studying Gandhi and nonviolent philosophy. And so he was in Nashville teaching these nonviolent workshops. And in early 1960, they're beginning the demonstrations. And this story is about one particular demonstration where the students were marching peaceably to um, sit in at lunch counters, which at that time, um, African-American people were not allowed to eat at the downtown lunch counters, although they were allowed to shop in the stores, of course, but not eat there. So it was a peaceful demonstration, just marching down, and some, some young, white, tough, like motorcycle hooligans, at the end of the line, they kind of attacked and knocked down two young men at the end of the peaceful demonstration line, and were kind of kicking them and beating on them, Bernard Lafayette and Solomon Gort. So Jim Lawson, who was there, and this is what he just walked over. And this is Bernard Lafayette, how he, he was one of the ones being beaten, but this is how he observed it. He said, Jim Lawson just walked over very calmly, as if every day he walked over to young white toughs who were beating up his friends. And so that brought their, the, the, the hooligans' attention to Jim Lawson. And they were so enraged by his confidence and his calmness and his non-aggression. I just enraged them, you know that one of them spit on him. And so Jim Lawson just looked at this guy and said, could you give me a handkerchief? And the guy was so stunned that he reached in his pocket, gave him the handkerchief, and at which point um, Bernard Lafayette and Solomon Gord had gotten up, they started getting back in line. And then Jim Lawson, and I could see in my mind how my mind immediately tends to make divisions, tends to say, oh, these guys are just bad, they're stupid, they're ignorant, you know, completely like shutting them out of my heart. And Jim Lawson looked at the guy, he looked at his, um, what he was wearing, which was the prevailing uniform of the day for white tufts, black pants, black leather motorcycle jacket, that kind of greased back haircut. And he looked at him and he said, oh, do you drive a motorcycle or a hot rod car? And the guy goes, oh, well, well, I drive a motorcycle. And then they plunged into this conversation about Lawson asked him, well, how do you have it souped up? He asked him a couple of technical questions. They got in this whole conversation about the levels of horsepower in motorcycles. Meanwhile, the other two guys who were being attacked had gotten up. The march had gone on. And Jim Lawson just sat there talking for a while. And as Bernard Lafayette said, in that brief frightening moment, Jim had managed to find a subject which they both shared and had used it in a way that made each of them seem more human in the eyes of the other. As they walked away, Jim waved to the man. The man remained still. He didn't wave back. He couldn't accept the friendship, but on the other hand, neither did he reject it. Of course, that's enormous courage, enormous vision, you know, to, in a situation like that, to be able to reach beyond the fear and the limitation that stereotypical views put on and find that there's got to be some, some thread of humanness in there. you know, And it's only by reaching beyond our views that we're able to do that. So that's a huge you know, life experience, and that takes a really exceptional person who can do that, I think. 
And so I want to bring it back to here, to our meditation retreat. And the examples now may seem mundane, but remember, the way our mind latches onto experience, solidifies it, forms views here in this situation is just the same way our mind does it in more complex and confusing situations. This is where we can learn about it. This is where we can begin to see that perception can be different. So, just think a minute. Have you noticed any views arising about what good practice means during this time? About what good practice would look like if you, God forbid, should ever experience a moment of it? For us, talking to all of you, it's great because we get to see one after the other, the views, we get to see that they're views because one person will come in and say, you know, my practice stinks. I try to stay with the breath, but all this other stuff keeps happening. The next person will come in and say, you know, I can't see impermanence. I'm just staying with the breath. And I really want to see impermanence because that's what good practice is about. And the thing about if you have a lot of emotions, that's good practice. And the next person, I don't have emotions. I'm just shallow and superficial. You know, the other person is, I just can't even feel the breath. I have no practice at all. How you sit, how you walk, what good samadhi is. That's when someone comes into me and says, my concentration is no good. That is like one of the most uninformative remarks as far as having any idea what the person means by samadhi, by good concentration, by bad concentration. You know, we have so many views. And do you notice that as soon as you maybe have achieved what you think is good practice, then another view forms. Or we say something up here and you hear part of it and make a view about it. And we get stuck there and we suffer and we beat ourselves up because that's not what's happening. We don't let in other perceptions. This is true at one retreat some years ago. It was about the fifth day of the retreat. And a woman came up and, well, in an interview, she said, I have just been in agony trying to sit cross-legged here these five days. It's been so painful, but I thought that's what you have to do. That's what good practice is. She said, and it just had dawned on her that morning. She looked at me. I was sitting there the whole time in a chair. She looked at me and said, oh, Carol's sitting in a chair. Maybe that's okay. Maybe, I mean, we had said it, of course, a million times. We never, did we ever say you have to sit cross-legged or it's not good practice? And believe me, we never said that. And it took five days to let in that visual perception that, oh, maybe that's not true. And we all do that. And it's so painful. I'll watch myself finally letting go. Like, for example, just to take it, that's enough. Oh, I don't have to sit cross-legged. I can sit in a chair. But I can't move the whole sitting. Immediately, we drop one and make another one. You know, this is how it has to be. Or having, can you imagine having no view, no opinion of what good practice is? Just like I said, having no confirmation at the end and just be willing to be with what arises. Have you heard us say that before? The thing is, we really meant it. It just be with what arises. That's where it's at. Or the views I certainly have of what an enlightened being should be like, of what a spiritual life would look like. This story Philip reminded me of it. I haven't told it in years, and uh, so I get to tell it again tonight. It's always nice to remember old stories. 
view of what it really means to live in a spiritual way. Quite some years ago, almost 20 years ago now, I went to Thailand to 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 ordain as a Buddhist nun, and I spent a year in that way. And when I first got there and found the temple and an abbot who would agree to ordain me, that's a whole process, and it was in a temple in northern Bangkok, the abbot was a very, very well-known abbot in Thailand, very famous, an, an older abbot, a good friend of Ajahn Buddha Das's, so very respected. And so he had me stay, you know, he didn't just, I didn't, you can't just walk off the street and he goes, sure, I'll ordain you. You know, they need to kind of check you out a little bit. So he had me stay there for some weeks as a layperson. And my first night there in a little hut, they gave me a little hut, and I had very long hair at that time. And you just sleep on the floor on a thin straw mat. And in the middle of the night, um, I found out that uh, an army of ants had suddenly altered its path. You know, they walk in a path, and the path now went through where I was sleeping, and especially through my hair. <laughs> so that in the middle of the night, I woke up with just all these little ants in my hair. And, you know, we take the precepts not to kill, of course, you know. So I sweep them away, sweep them away, they come back. I really didn't know what to do. And that was just the introduction. I mean, you spend some time in the tropics, you develop many intimate relationships with all types of insects. But I really didn't know what to do. So the next morning, I went to the abbot and thought, well, they must deal with this all the time. He'll have the answer, how you deal with this in the spiritual way. And I explained my dilemma, and they're in my hair, and yada, yada. And so he, he had his, his assistant, Maha Chachai, another monk, said, oh, okay, don't worry. And he went off and came back and handed me a big can of Raid. <laughs> I said, huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I didn't, I personally didn't feel good about that, but I said, okay, I'm on my own. That's really what it comes down to. So. <laughs> You want to know the truth? I can't remember. That's really the truth. I can't remember if I squirted the raid or not. My guess would be I probably did. Because I was like, oh, these ants. I was really freaking out. But, but a year later, I was in another monastery. And it was part of my morning routine. I'd get up. I'd have my shower. I'd go to have my meal. I'd come back and spend half an hour trying to sweep out the ants. You know, that just became part of the daily routine. But I was fresh, you know, that I hadn't adjusted to that yet. So, but ultimately it comes down, no one can tell you really, you know. We're on our own there. What's really true for me? So, hmm. how the whole line of thought and opinion and view begins and gets so solidified. I have this all written out so nicely and I'm not finding that page. But luckily, I can remember it. Ah, here we go. Is it starts with this process of perception I mentioned, that recognition factor, where the Buddha says at one time, what one, there's contact, any, any of the sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, it arises. We feel it, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. We perceive it, oh, that's a bell, that's a rug, that's an owl baby. 
and then we proceed to think about it. And the thinking is colored by all our memories and associations and everything, and that can, if we're not aware, those turn into the associations and the notions that assail and overwhelm a person. This word for this is papancha, which we love, which is called proliferation. The mind just proliferates and goes crazy, assails and overwhelms us. Now, what's interesting is, in beginning with the perception, what we perceive, often that is actually not even accurate. And then from that inaccurate perception, we proceed to build up all these memories and associations and everything else, and then we're really gone into opinions and views and relating to something that isn't even happening, and we wonder why we feel confused and disconnected. A simple example of misperception. When I walk around, back to my house again, when I walk around my house without my glasses on, I'll think, oh, everything looks really clean. (laughs) And I'll feel happy. And then I put on my glasses and I go, oh my God, (laughs) I didn't see all this. And I feel bothered, you know. (laughs) Difference in perception colored by my desires and emotions. Let me give you uh, another example. A friend of mine, a woman, told me at retreat, this is a very clear example, I think. She goes to her office and she saw a co-worker of hers came in and he looked in her direction and frowned. She said, oh, he's frowning at me. And immediately she said, why is he angry at me? We haven't even spoken today. What did I do wrong? And she spent the whole day alternately in fear, in aversion, in anger. It brought up her feelings of worthlessness. She was running over everything that had gone on between them. You know, why was he angry at her? And on and on and on. Put her in a rotten mood for the day. The next day it took her till she realized he wasn't even looking at her or frowning at her. He was having family problems and he was just feeling down. So her original perception The original contact was seeing somebody and an expression on his face. Her misperception was that he was frowning at her. And then the associations, that misperception was colored by her mood, by her tendency to feel worthless and a little bit of fear. And then the day was spent with these notions proliferating past, future, everything she could remember about him, all her feelings of worthlessness, the whole story all based on something that wasn't even really happening in the first place. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Have you ever noticed that? If you haven't, please pay attention the next few days. There's a phenomenon we call yogi mind, which is basically what she's describing, but where one particular perception happens, a desire, something we don't like, or we perceive something inaccurately, and our mind just goes to town. It just really runs riot, as they say in the commentaries. You know, We find yourself running all over the campus, looking for something, trying to tell somebody something, not thinking, you know, trying to fix whatever. And it's, it's all the energy that we expend in our life, in distractedness, in all the stuff that we do. Because life is so simple here, when we lose mindfulness, and we get caught up in this proliferation, all that energy is available for craziness, basically. And our mind just takes it and runs. So that's perception, 
which may be inaccurate, and we rarely stop to let in the fact that, oh, is that actually what I perceived, or could it be different? And then all the proliferation that comes on top of that. That's where most of our views form and solidify. So great to know, this is what I think, this is what I believe is true. Could it be another way? And this is where we get to selflessness, egolessness. The actual basic misperception that we're misperceiving in many different ways over and over and over that often without an inquiry, some form of self-inquiry goes unquestioned, is the perception that there's a continuous, unchanging I or me somewhere in here running the show. You may not think you're your body or you may think you're your body, but somewhere back there, doesn't it feel like you're the same you you've always been running the show? Maybe not doing such a great job of running the show, but really trying. It's the most subtle and unrecognized view, interpretation, opinion of ourselves and the world. And it's the one from which all the rest of our confusion and trouble can spring. So that we don't always take our perception, I mean, we assume how we perceive is true. For instance, if you can see, I think, I think everyone here can see, so I'll use sight. We all maybe know intellectually that somehow the way the sight comes in and it's turned upside down and the brain turns it around or something, but really, the way we see things, when I open my eyes and it looks solid, I really unquestioningly, if I'm not paying attention, think that's how it is. But that's just how we're trained to see. My father recently had an eye operation, because he has this macular degeneration, where they rotated one of his retinas 40 or 50 degrees. And they said, oh, don't worry, it'll compensate. But it didn't. So he was walking around, and one of his eyes saw everything leaning over this way. And I want to tell you, that's very disorienting. you know. And one saw things straight, but nothing in the middle. You know, and so we're so used to depending on how we see is how it is that he really, you know, he 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 didn't feel comfortable walking on the sidewalk because he'd he'd kind of be leaning over and he'd keep walking off the edge of the sidewalk because everything was tilting this way. And it just was a good reminder to me that I take say visual perception. That's really how it is. But like that other 99% of the universe that's undetectable. Somehow we don't see it, you know. Something's out there, or they think. It's like that with our physical experience, with our emotions, with our thoughts. What this practice is helping us do is to keep meeting moment by moment our physical experience, emotions, thoughts, perceptions, each time fresh, rather than assuming continuity. So in the physical Sometimes, as the mind gets quiet in meditation, you really experience the sense of solidity kind of falls away. And sometimes that's very scary. Sometimes it's very pleasant. Sometimes it's nothing special. It's just, okay, just points of sensation arising. But it's sort of like um, the example they give in Asia is as if you have, from Asia again, 
uh, long distance, you see a line of ants. See, there really are a lot of ants in Asia. And from a distance, it looks like one solid, unbroken line. And then you come up closer, and you see it's millions and millions of ants going. But from a distance, it looks solid. That's the example it gives. Our body feels solid, but as the attention gets finer, it's just sensation after sensation after sensation, arising and passing, arising and passing. Knowing that or hearing that doesn't make any difference. Experiencing it, it doesn't change everything, but it opens, oh, maybe things are a different way. Some little clinging to, I think that's how it is, let's go. The same with emotions, the same with thoughts. Have you noticed how thoughts tell yourself your self-story all day long? I'm assuming I'm not the only one. Now she's getting up. Now she's turning around. Oh, I'm really not doing this very well. I'm not doing the walking well. Other people are doing it better. And how the particular self-story is based on a perception. You might have the perception is you're walking, someone walks by, just looking so pure and mindful and present. And you're wobbling all over the place and looking at the little bunnies and thinking about what's for lunch. And you think, ah, I just can't do this. I am no good. And so the perception was somebody walking slow, colored by self-negativity, sense of worthlessness, and comparing. And you start remembering everything you ever failed at in your life. I go back to remedial gym class in the fifth grade. And now here I am, I can't even walk mindfully, you know. Anything pleasant isn't noticed. Any other memory isn't accessed. Only everything bad until you've worked yourself into a total knot of disgust and failure. And that's me. And then we don't notice that suddenly it changes. Or in the next sitting, You walk in, you've sort of forgotten that whole little knot. You're just walking in thinking about lunch. You sit down and, wow, the breath's right here. It's cool. It's present. I can really note every time the mind goes off, I am really something hot. (laughs) I really am getting this, you know. I I think I have a deep, deep spiritual inclination. In fact, maybe I'm a talku. You know, I'm a reincarnation. I just haven't been discovered yet in some Tibetan tradition. And then you remember everything positive, everything beautiful that ever happened. And you forget that other. But the thing is, at the end of the day, you feel like that was one eye. It wasn't one eye. There was some positive, pleasant perception. There was all that papancha. That was the birth of eye. Then that eye died. There was an unpleasant thing. There was all this papancha. Then that eye died. Birth and death of self constantly. And without examination, we think it's me. You know Lily Tomlin's line, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. (laughs) That's what we're doing. Notice, any sense experience, the sound of rain, boom, pleasant, rain in my childhood, the smell in the desert, isn't this beautiful, I'm one with nature, yada, yada. All this me, my whole life, from one hearing experience that's pleasant, from one smelling, you know. Just notice that in the next. There's no judgment, but watch it come and go. And notice that it goes. It is not solid and continuous. Same with emotions, same with sensations, 
same with all experience. And please don't believe me. Look and see. We posit continuity through lack of inquiry, through lack of attention. Really look and see there isn't something solid. There isn't an unchanging me here. And that, it's the ultimate scary thought for that mind that's looking for security, that's looking for a resting place. But it is such a relief to put down that burden of thinking we're in charge of it all. Because frankly, if we're in charge of it all, we're not doing a very good job. We don't have to keep taking responsibility. Put it down. It's so freeing to be willing to simply meet the next moment with an air of, who knows? Let's just be here for it. I don't know if this is going to be my last breath. We really don't know that. Can I just be present? And if that moment is a moment of interpretation, a moment of thought, fine. Thought is just thought. It doesn't have to drive us. It doesn't have to imprison us when we recognize it for what it is. So that sense of, it's just the last image I'll use, the sense of opening, throwing ourselves into the next moment, into the unknown, not with fear, but with trust and faith, because whatever happens, we can take refuge and that the truth is present in this moment. If we can meet it free from all the baggage of what we think it is, then the truth can reveal itself. The image is one that Franz told me about, climbing up to the top of this mountain in India, Mount Arunachala, which is like a sacred mountain um, for Ramana Maharshi. And he climbed up to the top. It's not huge. And up at the top, there's a whole bunch of mountain monkeys that live up there. And it's very kind of rocky, scraggly, with a few branches and bushes. He said these, ma- these monkeys were so great to watch because they would be standing on the edge of a rock and they would just fling themselves out into space as if they thought they could fly. And with total trust and total abandon, giving themselves into the moment. And they always landed on a rock or landed on a branch, but they didn't stand there first and look and go, okay, that one, I'm going for it, you know, and I don't go until I'm sure where I'm going to put my foot down. It's just, the universe will catch us. That quality of full-hearted, open attention, willingness to meet this moment. And you don't have to think about anything I said tonight because it reveals itself to us when we can meet the moment free of preconceptions. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Time for walking.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.